the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we're convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good afternoon, Imago Day, and Happy New Year. Hope everything has been good. Hope you've started this year with a bang. Um... I was hoping that would happen for me, but last night we got beat by about 51 points. Yeah, about 50. Yeah, not even 50, 50. Gee whiz. So be praying for us. I realize I'm going to have to fast and pray for about 40 days and 40 nights for God to do a work on our team. So, but other than that, I'm praying for a big year. How many of you guys believing for a big year this year? Whatever. Amen? All right. Five of us. All right. So, this afternoon, we're going to hit Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 28. Luke 4, verse 14 through 28. If you've got a Bible, turn it there. If you don't, there's a Bible in your pew. Grab it and... Read with me or look with me here in this passage. Luke 4, verse 14 through 28. Starting in verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. And he went to Nazareth where he he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendants, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. And Jesus said, Surely you, you will quote this proverb to me Physicians, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. And truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. And when the sky shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet none of them were cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people, verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Lord, I just pray that as we kick off the new year, may we kick it off with, with, with an understanding of what the implications are in this text. And I pray that we would walk out of here inspired and challenged and moved to love and serve you in greater ways. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm going to out myself. I was on the hate on LeBron James train. I was. I'm a diehard Laker fan. I know Blazer fans hate Lakers and the Laker fans. But I'm from Inglewood, so, you know, I was, I was there during the 80s when they were running off championships with Magic, so I can't help it, right? I bleed purple and gold. That's just what I do. And I, you know, I wasn't ready to concede a new power in the NBA. And so when, when LeBron made his announcement and decided he was going to take his talents to, to South Beach, I wasn't happy about it. Not that he cared, but I wasn't happy about it. And so I was one of the naysayers that said, there's just no way he's going to win a championship. Right? He got come still through L.A., right? He ain't going to win no championship. His heart pumps Kool-Aid. You know, we say that kind of like... He ain't got the killer in him. And two championships later, I'm wrong. He's right. Now, he won me over a little bit. All right? There's a little bit of love I have in my heart for LeBron. And let me, the interesting thing is, is what won me over. It wasn't the two championships. It's what he said after the second one that kind of won me over to LeBron. And it was this. A... a one of the announcers was interviewing him after the champion, his second championship game on the floor and says, what do you, LeBron, have to say to your naysayers now? And this was his opportunity to get all, you know, prideful and boastful, you know, and it's his chance to boast and retaliate because he got a lot of hate for the last couple of years prior to him getting, winning that, those two championships. And the most interesting, endearing thing that he said that kind of changed my attitude and heart toward him was when he said, man, all I know is that I'm a black kid from Akron, Ohio. I ain't even supposed to be here. And when he said that, that changed everything. How do you hate on that? Because in my mind, I'm saying to myself, can you imagine what a black kid who grew up in the housing projects of Akron who was watching LeBron say that, how that kid must have felt when LeBron was repping Akron on the biggest stage in the world. I don't know about you, but I'm from South Central LA. I was born and raised in Inglewood, and I will always hold down Inglewood. Not just the Lakers, but Inglewood, because that's where I was raised. In fact, when I was pastoring the well, one of my buddies, his name was Perry Gardner, and he used to always laugh after one of my sermons, because he would come up to me and he'd go, man, you always find a way to weave in sorry Inglewood into your sermons. (laughs) If you listen to rap music, and you hear any reference to Inglewood, it's usually about gangbanging, drugs, and all that stuff, right? And it's got all those elements in Inglewood. But there's a beautiful piece of Inglewood that I know and I identify. When I go home, I drive down the streets and boulevards and alleyways and hoop courts that I played in, high schools that I went to, and neighborhood friends' houses that I used to spend the night at. I do all that when I go back to Inglewood. I just have to do that, right? I have to pay homage. You can imagine LeBron, right, putting Akron on the map. This is Jesus. All we know about his hometown of Nazareth, where he's getting ready to come home to, is one statement that someone said, which was, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, right? Jesus grew up in his own version of South Central L.A. 
He grew up in his own Akron. If you can imagine, he's doing all these miracles outside of his hometown. And so in his newspaper, they learned, they announced that he's coming home. The rabbi's coming home to teach. And you can imagine the excitement. People are knocking on each other's door and they're saying, get to the synagogue early. Jesus is in town. Can you imagine how packed that synagogue had to be? Could you imagine how full that synagogue had to have been? And so Jesus, doing what rabbis do, walks in and teaches and then looks to explain the text. And it's interesting that verse 19 actually becomes literally the central theme of the whole passage. Verse 19 He came proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Taking a page from Isaiah. This is God speaking through Christ saying, I'm here to fulfill this right here. The year of the Lord's favor. Now, favor means grace. And I want to give you three points on verse 19, proclaiming the year's favor. I want to give you three points on what that actually means in light of grace. Three things. The first thing is, what does it teach us about what grace is? Two, who gets grace and who doesn't? Three, how then do you get grace flowing through your veins? Okay, what is grace? Who gets grace? Who doesn't get grace? And then three, how do you get it flowing in your own life? First, who gets, I'm sorry, what is grace? The year of the Lord's favor was pinnacle of this very wonderful, compassionate law God had given to the people of Israel when they went into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 15, it says two things. Every seven years, whatever debt you accrued in seven uh, seven years, cancel. And on top of that, If you had to become a slave, which was indentured servitude, in other words, if you couldn't pay off the debt, you could offer services to pay off the debt. But after seven years, all slaves released. This is not shadow slavery that we experienced here in America. It's a totally different slave system back then. And so every seven years, all debts canceled, all slaves released. Can you imagine if Visa, American Express, and MasterCard adopted these practices. Wow. Would that be amazing? But what makes it even more amazing is that after every seven cycles of these seven years, which would bring you up to about the 50th year, this was the year of the Lord's flavor, which was called the year of Jubilee. And what the year of Jubilee was, was that any land that was lost was returned back to you. You may have hit hardship, you may have had to sell off your land, but you knew in 50 years, you could right the ship. You could hit the reset button on your life. And this was God's economic system in Israel to be a witness. There was no system like this. There was no system that took care of the poor the way this system was set up to take care of the poor. There was no system to keep wealth, right? Accumulated wealth at bay than God's system. And so it kept the wealthy from accumulating too much. It kept the children of the wealthy from um, uh, forced them to find their own way. There were no trust fund children. 
There were no prayers Hilton's here. You had to find your own way. And it also kept or offered the poor an opportunity to start anew. Once a lifetime. Now, this was a law that God gave to Israel. This was an expectation God had as a witness to the nation around it. This was the economic system. Now, here's the question. How would you have liked to live under these laws? Some of you say, well, it depends. If I'm a borrower, it's great. If I'm a lender, not so great. So it really depends on, you know, like what side am I on here? Now, from the time Isaiah prophesied, which is Jesus is picking up this prophetic word from Isaiah chapter 61. From the time Isaiah had literally prophesied this until Jesus goes into the synagogue and says, this scripture is now being fulfilled. The year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee is being fulfilled in your midst. There had been almost 700 plus years that had gone by. Almost 14 to 15 jubilees should have happened. Now, most theologians and most church historians, as I started digging and asking this question, most of them, let me throw out this question to you, how many of those 14 to 15 jubilees do you think Israel actually did? Most Historian and theologians say, none. Not one. Not one. The trumpet had never sounded. And you see God raising up major and minor prophets giving scathing rebuke of Israel about how they handled their money and how they trampled on the poor. Because the trumpet had never gone out. 14, 15 jubilees had never gone out. God's people had never honored this economic system. And why? Well, it's easy. When you're in a position of power, Power is not easy to relinquish. Can you imagine how they rationalized it in their own head? 700 years, 14 jubilees, none of them being honored. Can you imagine the arguments that they had? It's kind of like when we look at human oppression today. In order for a human oppression to work, you got to justify it. It's like when the pilgrims came over to America, they came over on a theological ideal that they were God's chosen people. And it was a theological ideal. And then when they came over, it shifted from a theological ideal to a cultural and racial ideal. And so no longer were they special because of God's grace transforming them. And it had nothing to do with them. So now all of a sudden it became all about them. Not just theologically, but racially. 
And so you create some kind of a justification as to why you can oppress people. And after you justify it, you normalize it. It's like when you watch 12 Years a Slave, the thing that blew me away about that slave movie was, was how normal it was. It was as normal enslaving people as it is for us putting on, our pair, putting on a pair of socks. And you can either do one of two things when that happens. You can either capitulate to it and participate in that kind of system which Israel did clearly for 700 years because no trumpet sounded off and God sent prophet after prophet. Or you can confront it. And so for 700 years, here's Jesus steps into the synagogue in a very lowly, poor place. And he says, today I'm fulfilling the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what does this teach us about grace? It teaches, it has everything to do with grace. Because here's what God is telling Israel. He's saying to Israel, he says, I am going to do for you what you failed to do for each other. The inheritance that Adam lost, the inheritance that Adam forfeited, I'm restoring it back. I'm going to do what you couldn't do. I'm going to live what you couldn't live. I'm going to be what you couldn't be in your place. This is what grace is. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. And the interesting thing is that this is going to cost him. See, when you lose a million, listen, if you're a creditor or a lender, you know, if you get your debt canceled as a creditor, that's great. It didn't cost you anything. But to the lender, if he lent you a million and he canceled that million, it cost him a million. So when we talk about grace and God, Christ says, I'm coming to do what you failed to do for each other and the people. I've come to be the witness you never were. I come to pay the price that you never paid. I come to release power because you never would. I come to do what you would never do. That is what grace is. That grace comes at a sufficient, overwhelming, enormous cost. To the lender. Today is the year of the Lord. Favor, grace is offered. Now, second point who gets this grace and who doesn't? I don't think you understand who gets the grace until you understand it from the perspective of those who don't get. This kind of grace. Interesting in verse 22, after Jesus had taken Isaiah 61, read it and said, today is being fulfilled in your midst. Notice what they say. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and they were amazed at his gracious words. And then at the end of verse 28, it says, all people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. How do you go from all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words to man now they're furious at him the church is in an uproar well let me put it this way you can get grace and not get the gospel 
But you can't get the gospel and not get grace. You can get grace and not get the gospel, but you can't get the gospel and not get grace. Now, here's what I mean by that is, is that oftentimes what we do with grace is, is that we either add to, the, add to it or subtract to it. Those that add to, to, to grace are people that think grace is too scandalous, and so they always got to put prerequisites to it. And so what they've done is, is that they've divested grace of grace to where it no longer becomes grace anymore because grace is, comes without merit. And if you can earn anything or add anything to it, it ceases to be grace. And so some people add to grace, which subtracts from grace. And then you've got the others that don't add grace. They subtract from grace, meaning they use grace as a way to sign off on their sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship said cheap grace. That's what he calls it means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. And so there's two ways you can go with this kind of cheap grace. You can either add to it, right, where you don't rely on grace, right? You divest grace of its power or you subtract from grace because you use it to sign off on your mess. And so you can get grace without getting the gospel, but you can't once you really get the gospel. When the gospel transforms your life, You can't get the gospel without getting grace because it does the second thing, which is when you truly get grace, it sneaks up on you. It strikes you. It moves you. It blows you away. 13 years, I was a youth pastor. I used all the fear taxes as a youth pastor. No secular music, no R-rated movies, you know, youth camp, burn all our CDs, break it with all our boyfriends. We're going back to the city and we're going to live righteous for God. For two weeks. I used all the fear tactics. And if you would have walked up to me as a youth pastor 13 years in the youth pastoring game. And said, Eric, your fundamental problem with your ministry and preaching is the fact that you didn't get the gospel or grace. I would have laughed at you because I would have thought that's the very thing that I was preaching. And I realized after I got it that I never saw in the scriptures how scandalous grace was. And when you look at the Bible, after you really get the gospel, all of a sudden you see God turning everything upside down, right? The marginalized, the disconnected, the powerless, the, you know, the unbecomingly, the, all, all the social categories get flipped on their head. And when you read the Bible, after your eyes have been opened to who he truly is, everything makes sense. It's almost like this old movie. Some of you probably, it'll date a lot of you in this room. But there was this movie I watched when I was in college back in 1985. It was called Crossing the Switchblade. And it was about Nicky Cruz. And Nicky Cruz was the most notorious gangster in Harlem, New York. And David Wilkerson was like from midtown America. And he got this word from God to go to New York City and preach to Nicky Cruz, the toughest gang member, gang member in New York City. And so he goes there. He's just this hillbilly fire fireball preacher. I'm watching this movie. He goes there and he reaches out to Nicky Cruz and his gang and they're not having it. And then Nicky decides they were in this right bitter rival with this other and feud with this other gang. And they decided both gang, Nicky Cruz and whoever the gang member of the other gang was decided, all right, you guys want to fight? You want to battle? Let's meet at the evangelism meeting that David Wilkerson's having at a movie theater. And so they organized that they were going to meet at the evangelistic meeting that David Wilkinson was organizing. 
and, and battle there, right at the altar. And both gangs, gangs file into the movie theater. David Wilkerson's preaching, and he preaches one of the most powerful, heartfelt sermons. I, I was moved just watching it in the movies. And all of a sudden, both gangs get saved, including the, David, um, uh, Nicky Cruz's rival gang leader. And then Nicky Cruz gives his life dramatically to Christ right there in the theater. Now, here's the interesting thing. Nicky's head henchman was a guy named Israel. It was his best friend and henchman. His name was Israel. And Israel had actually the most dramatic conversion, at least on the movie, in the movie, Nicky's crying and he's bawling and he's just given his life to Christ. And David Wilkerson's, all of his helpers are throwing Bibles out into the audience and all these gang members, a beautiful thing, seeing them all grab Bibles. And then, and then Israel, Nicky's henchman, grabs the Bible and he starts flipping through the pages. He's, he's flipping through it. And then he looks up at David Wilkerson and he goes, preacher. He said, preacher. He said, my name is everywhere. My name is everywhere. And I loved it. But do you understand when you get Jesus, when you get how scandalous grace is, all of a sudden you come to the Bible and brand new with fresh eyes and you're like, it's everywhere. He's turning everything upside down, right? And until you have that kind of, with your Bible, oh my God, it's everywhere kind of experience, my friend, you may not have gotten grace. Because grace strikes you, moves you, sneaks up on you, blows you away. 13 years ago when I was starting the well, 2.30 in the morning, I start reading my Bible, getting ready for a Sunday morning as we're getting the church off the ground. And all of a sudden, boom, the gospel exploded in my heart. I knew I could never be the same again. You see, they were furious at Jesus. Why? Well, for this reason. They were a minority in their own homeland. Roman was their uh, oppressor. Rome had taxed them into the ground. And then Jesus walks into the temple... Uh, it's the synagogue, and he reads Isaiah 61, and that would, you know, when, when they hear that, they're like, man, this is awesome. Because what do you think they're thinking? Finally, somebody's going to take up our issue. Finally, the Savior has come, right? We're going to go take Rome down. And Jesus goes, whoa, 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 whoa. How far down the rabbit hole do you guys want to go? How far down the rabbit hole of grace do you guys really want to go down? Because if you truly understand my message and my mission, let me give you an illustration lest you get it confused. There was this famine in the land. And there was this Gentile poor woman who was a widow that Elijah came to. Didn't come to anyone else but her. 
And then there was this wealthy general who also happened to be Gentile from Syria that Elijah came to. And at the hearing of that, they gritted and grinded their teeth and became furious because in their head, there's no way that God would be as gracious to their oppressors as he was willing to be toward them. How far down this grace rabbit hole do we actually want to go down? You see, we like grace as long as we can define the terms of what grace is and who grace is for. It's funny how oftentimes grace is only for people that look like us, think like us, vote like us, dress like us, worship like us, are in our same economic class, etc. Jesus says, this kind of grace is scandalous. On the one hand, you have this poor Gentile widow from Zarephath. And on the other hand, you have this very wealthy Gentile general named Naaman. Which tells me that the gospel is not just for the powerless, but it's also for the powerful. It's not just for the minority, but it's for the majority. It's not for those that are disconnected, but it's also for the connected. It's not for those that have been pushed aside, but it's for those people who got the power that have been pushing people aside. It's for both. And they are called to live in a radical kind of kingdom that is counterintuitive and cause each of them to live upside down. Jesus is this Jewish rabbi talking about these Gentiles that he came to fulfill and bring these Gentiles, this widow and this general, into the kingdom of God. You see how far Jesus takes grace down the rabbit hole? Like, how far are we willing to take this, you guys? Like, are we willing to extend grace to the spouse that cheated on us, the uncle that molested us, The boss that fired us. The church that hurt us. The dad that walked out on us. How far down the rabbit hole do we go? How serious before we start grinding our teeth and say, that's enough. That's the cap we're going to put on grace. So how do you get this as I close? How do you get this in you? How do you get this kind of grace flowing through your veins? Look at verse 18 as I close. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and he has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. Do you see who Jesus identifies here, that he came to liberate four types of people. 
the poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed. People who have been crushed. People that would come to him because they had obvious needs. And yet at the same time, at the backdrop, you obviously see that he's also come for not just people that were powerless, but also powerful because naming the general definitely had wealth. And so basically, how do you get grace flowing in your veins? All you need is need. That's what you bring to this whole thing. It's need. All of them are in need. That's what grace is. It comes to meet people that understand that they can't bring anything. That they're sinners in need of God's grace. That transformation can't happen through their own hands. It won't happen through self-will. It only happen because of his work in their life. The fact that your heart or head is even warm to the ideal of recommitting your life to Christ or even or giving your life to Christ is because Christ gave you even that ability to. It all comes from him. There's no ground for anybody, the Bible says in Romans 3, to boast. Salvation is of the Lord. And that's why three times he says, the spirit of the Lord's on me. He has anointed me. He has sent me because you can't, everything that you try and meet those needs are nothing more than substitutes for him. You've got to come to him. Only Christ can transform you in a way that nothing else can. And when you come to Christ, you come into this this glorious triune love that God offers, that he's been having with himself for all of eternity. You come into this sacred, holy dance and you get to experience the power and presence and personality of this God that loves you deeply and has put his imprint on your life profoundly to do something unique and he comes to save you, to pull you up out of your own ashes, to live outside of these imaginary boxes and categories of race and culture and gender and every other. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your work. I thank you that you're a God that transforms. I'm I'm thankful that that this is the year of the Lord's favor, that you're turning everything on its head. So today, as we worship, we give our heart to you. As we come now to the communion table and eat of the bread and drink of the wine, we realize that our debt has been canceled. the year of the Lord's favor has been fulfilled in you. As we remember that your blood was shed for us, God, we come with thankfulness and gratitude and a heart filled with worship. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you are interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.imagodaycommunity.com.